Partial funding for this episode of Fruit Bowl comes from Scruff, the queer dating app. More than 20 million members worldwide use Scruff to connect, meet, and express themselves on a platform that prioritizes privacy and security. Available on iPhone and Android. For those of us who grew up queer in less than accepting communities or families, I've noticed that a lot of my interviewees, myself included, use a common survival strategy that I've decided to call the perfect child diversion. Coming out to ourselves during adolescence while we're still living with our family may provide us with a brief moment of peace and self-acceptance, but it's often followed by abject panic when we realize that our sexuality has the potential to blow up the domestic equilibrium that has been established so far in our lives. Coming out will surely be catastrophic, we think. So, in order to maintain peace, many of us double down on academics or sports or theater or scouts in an effort to distract our family, our community, and even ourselves from our emerging queer identity. We aspire to be the perfect child. This strategy can also translate into academic or athletic scholarships to a college far, far away, where there's more queer people, and where we can reinvent ourselves and live life on our own terms. In this episode, Mike describes taking on the role of his family's perfect child. As a first-generation Vietnamese-American growing up in Texas, he felt he had to achieve the American dream of being a homeowner with a good job, a wife, and 2.5 kids. Even after he came out to his family, he still felt an obligation to adhere to traditional definitions of relationships, often at the expense of his own happiness and mental health. It wasn't until he lived in New York City that he started to make friends with queer people who were in loving, non-monogamous relationships, and soon realized that's what he wanted. Cut to today, Mike lives with his two partners and has embraced a more compassionate perspective when it comes to hooking up, free of judgment and shame. Like many of us, Mike's journey has taken him to some surprising places and is far from being over. Thanks to Ryan, HB, Geo, and John for becoming my latest patrons. This puts us at 31 patrons who, together, raise $177 per month. Remember, patrons receive early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive access to video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Thanks to Dave Pesner, assistant editor and sound mixer for this episode. All right, that's enough for me. Now here's Mike who I interviewed in September of 2021, right here in Seattle. We're playing with all these toys, and he, like, whips out the, the double and the dildo, and he wants to play with that, and he is, like, fucking me with it. It's great. And at one point, he's just like, oh. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, well, it's in there. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? He's like, I lost it in there. It, it kind of just sucked it up. And I was like, get it out. And he, he's unable to retrieve said dildo. It's in me. The entire thing is in my body. 
Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. My name is Mike, I'm 33, and I graduated high school in 2006. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Went to Austin for undergrad and lived there for about 10 years, so still very much a Texas boy. Um, it's funny, like, when you grow up in it, you don't realize how conservative it is. And I guess in retrospect, it's, it's kind of both things. Like, it's, I was surrounded by gun-toting, you know, anti-choice, like, environment, but I also grew up in the suburbs of Houston in kind of like an affluent neighborhood that was pretty progressive and liberal considering, you know, that we're in Texas. Like, one of the things that I realized not until I got into college was that, like, the Civil War was not about states' rights, but that's what I was always raised to believe. You know, that's what all my textbooks said. That's what my teachers told me. And I was like, no, it's about fucking slavery. Like, as an adult, I've had to do a lot of unlearning because I just thought that this is how the world is and because these are the values that my community had or these are the values that I was taught in school. Thinking about, like, queer representation in my community, it was, like, non-existent. And it's not like we had, like, people marching in the streets saying, like, fags are going to hell or something like that. But it was also not a place that I ever saw, like, two gay men together or holding hands or anything like that. And I think that's why, for a long time, I didn't know what gay meant. And I didn't know that gay relationships or romance existed and that that was a possibility for my for me, you know? I could have this attraction to men, but I would still always end up with a woman and I would still have my white picket fence and my nuclear family and all of that. And that just, that was the default in my mind. My parents came over during the war, so they both fled Vietnam in 75. And took meandering ways to find each other somehow in Arkansas, of all places, and then made their way down to Houston, where they decided to build a life for their family. So the third most spoken language in Texas is actually Vietnamese. It's a huge Vietnamese population. I think it's because it's a very similar sort of like climate as Vietnam, and um, kind of once you have a foothold there, then like that's where the community goes to. So there's four of us, my sister and then my two parents. They're still together. Um, my sister is seven years older. My parents had my sister when they were, um, my mom was 19, my dad was 21. They were very, very young, and they had just married the year before. They didn't have their support system. They were kind of off on their own. And I don't, like, honestly, I don't think they were ready to be parents. And I think my sister upbringing suffered as a result of that. She was a bit of a wild child, a little bit of a black sheep, got into trouble. And again, I think that was the contrast with me is that, like, I was, like, the quiet, like, straight-A student, right? And so there's a lot of tension there between my sister and myself, but I've always, I think, been, like, the level-headed one and, and come out as kind of the nurturing big brother for her at times. We used to be really, really close, like, attached to the hip close. And in the last several years, that relationship has deteriorated. And it, it, it's, it's me growing up and maturing and seeing my sister through different lenses, I guess taking the rose-colored glasses off a little bit. But the interesting thing is 
I don't, I don't know if my sister has come out necessarily, but she's currently engaged to a woman. It's complicated. When I talk to my sister about it, she doesn't necessarily identify as bi or lesbian or pan or any of that. She says that she is attracted to her partner and her partner happens to be a woman, which I think is, is progressive and I, I like her, her view of that. I don't know if there's any kind of internalized homophobia around that. We haven't really talked about it. Growing up as the only boy of like a, a very, I guess, conservative culture, like Southeast Asian culture, and in the South, I felt, yeah, I grew up with these really heteronormative conservative ideals, you know? My parents are Republicans, which is baffling to me. Uh, I can't talk to my parents about politics. I mean, I can, but it usually doesn't end great because um, I'm very opinionated and so is my dad. But I felt a lot of pressure to perform a certain way. I think for a long time, I lived my life for other people, whether it be my parents or my friends or my community or what have you, because they expected me to be a certain person, to achieve certain things, to uh, do certain things with my life that I thought that I wanted, you know, because I didn't know anything else. And it wasn't until my 20s where I really started discovering my own voice and my own wants and realizing that I can deviate from the things that those authority figures prescribed for me. But yeah, I, my dad is the oldest boy of eight. Uh, my mom is the middle child of nine. And within our culture, he's the oldest boy. I'm his eldest boy. So there's a lot of like patriarchal responsibility that I'm supposed to uphold. I'm supposed to carry on the family name. And that's not really going to happen at this point. Nothing would make my parents more happy than if I were to settle down with like a Vietnamese woman and have our like 2.5 children and give them those grandkids. And I think that's obviously changed now and they don't expect that obviously and that they, they're they happy that I'm happy. And that's taken a lot of growth and education and talking um, on their part. So I, I'm super appreciative and, uh, and see them for doing that. But yeah, I think that's why they came here, right? As immigrants, they they came here to provide the best for their family and provide the best for their children and, and give them opportunity that they didn't have. And I think in their minds, obviously being gay is harder, right? And so I don't think that that's the life they saw for me. I was the good kid, you know? I, was, I followed the rules, I didn't make any trouble, I got good grades, and I did everything I was supposed to do. I was so scared to come out because I felt like this is gonna be the one ding on my record. Right? Like, you could have been valedictorian, graduated at the top of your class, received all your accolades, done whatever you needed to do. But if you're gay, it doesn't mean anything, right? That just erases all of your achievements in life. And that was my biggest fear when I came out. And it's because I didn't want to disappoint my parents, right? Is that they had given me so much opportunity and, and afforded me this lifestyle. And I was going to, in my eyes, I felt like I had squandered it somehow. It was a lot of pressure, but you can't you can't live your life for other people because you're just going to always be disappointing someone and it's taken a lot of years to kind of let that go to say that I am not going to be this person you expect me to be but that doesn't mean that I am not successful or that I'm not a good person or that I am not, I can't be happy there's just another path when I was going to school I was lucky to have a really diverse kind of cohort um, we were quarter black, quarter white, quarter Hispanic, quarter Asian. 
And so I had a lot of Asian friends, a lot of Vietnamese friends. And it's funny, the interesting thing is, is that I felt like I didn't fit in with any of them and wasn't as a part of my community as they were because when my parents came over, I think they made a conscious decision to assimilate. Like they didn't really speak Vietnamese at home. We ate a lot of Vietnamese food and we like attended the festivals and things like that, but it wasn't as ingrained in my like day-to-day life as I think a lot of my other friends were. And I'm thankful for that because I think it did give me a little bit more freedom and um, like the community as a whole felt more conservative than my particular family was. And I think that made me feel more comfortable later in life to come out to them and to have them meet my polyamorous partners, you know? Um, and so I've been really lucky in that regard that I think my parents are more progressive. I just don't think that I knew that growing up, right? I thought that my Vietnamese community was kind of this like monolithic, judgmental, patriarchal kind of entity that I had to be like subservient to. It was weird because it's it's one of those things that for a lot of my standard groups, I felt like an other because I was Asian. And then within my Asian community, I felt like I wasn't Asian enough type thing sometimes. So I, was, I felt kind of this weird kind of outsider mentality on top of being queer and being an outsider. So I think it's, it's all been a search for like identity and, and again, trying to feel like, do I know what I really want and, and what I aspire to have out of life? So my dad's youngest brother is gay, and he had a partner for as long as I could remember. It was never presented to me as Uncle Danny is gay, or that Greg is Uncle Danny's partner. It was just, that's Uncle Danny and Greg. I didn't know that they were in a relationship. They could have just been roommates, for all I knew. I have this distinct memory of like driving with my mom. This was probably when I was... 16 or 17, and her making a comment about, like, Uncle Danny's lifestyle or something. And I th- I don't exactly remember the context of the conversation, but in retrospect, it was her, I think, trying to gauge my reaction. And, like, my parents knew I was gay. They knew. And Why I think... Well, because they told me that <laughs> when I when I came out, my mom said that she knew um, and that she always knew, and it's a very my mom type of thing to say, which is like very like self centric of like I knew, I'm like good for you, gold star for mom. Um, a lot of people knew, but I think that that the conversation, the car ride, was her trying to see if she could like not necessarily out me but get some sort of confirmation one way or another. What age was this? Like 16 or 17, yeah. And I think I played it off and was just like, oh yeah, Uncle Danny and Greg. Um, you knew what the deal that was, right? At that time, yeah. At that, by that time, I, I knew what she was trying to do. They existed in my world, but I wouldn't say they were an example of like a healthy gay relationship. It's not something that I ever talked to them about. And I never really saw their dynamic, I think. Like, Greg was around, but it's not like they were in the kitchen together cooking or that they were, like, being romantic. And I think that was partially because of my family's, 
like comfort with it, you know. Um, there were two guys in um, the grade above me that were like known to be in a relationship together. This was in high school. Um, so I think I was sophomore and they were juniors, I was juniors and they were seniors. And they were, they were like friends of friends and we would run in the same circles occasionally and we were friendly. But I remember also this like distinct conversation at lunch where some of my other friends were circulating these rumors about how, this is ridiculous, this is high school, um, that they, I don't know why this is so stupid, um, that they had strapped glow sticks to their dicks. They were like Star Warsing it around or something like that. I was like, this is idiotic. But I remember- Using their dicks like lightsabers. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, why? Sure, okay. But I remember, I remember sitting there and listening to this and being like, this is absurd. But also, I can't defend these two guys. I can't stand up for them because if I do, then people will know I'm gay. And it's one of those things I think about that I'm like, I wish I had done this differently. I wish I were a more self-aware, confident person to stand up when someone else was being libeled like that. And I was 17, 16, and like, I couldn't do that. I had not, not enough self-awareness to do it. But it's something I, I still I, I think about. Like It's a distinct memory I have of, of this internalized homophobia, right? And I'm the type of person to try to not live with regrets. And so I use that as a teachable moment to say, you know, like, never allow yourself to do that ever again, you know? Regardless of if you're part of that community or not. Like, don't stand by and let other people be broken down so that way you you can be part of this other community, you can be accepted, you can you can feel whole. I found my parents' porn and I was maybe eleven or twelve. I don't know how I found it. It was unmarked VHS tapes in their closet. For whatever reason I decided to watch one of them and it was heterosexual porn. I'm like, this is interesting. Like clearly only looking at the men, but this is interesting. And I did the whole thing where I tried to like rewind it to the exact spot that I started it on so no one would ever know. And like, I think I would watch them when I was home alone for like months. And at some point they like, the tapes disappeared and no one ever said anything about it. Around the same time, I was going to ironically Vietnamese school on Sundays, but one of the other kids there was super like rebellious type of kid and he would bring hentai and we were like look at these like eight and a half by eleven printouts of porn drawings of anime it was like dragon ball z and sailor moon and they were like these giant penises and giant boobs and just like i was like what is this but also like what is that like seeing again these like ripped dudes with giant penises i was like okay that's interesting and so i think i'm pretty sure i went home and like looked on Yahoo Answers for something like that or something. But in the process of that, I think I also found my sister's porn, which is like, there's so much to unpack here. I need to talk to a therapist about this part. But I think in the process of like deleting my own internet history, I found my sister's internet history. And she was reading like erotic literature, you know, like fanfic type stuff. And so I was like, oh, stories are interesting. And so 
I guess this should have revealed something to me, but the, the stories my sister was reading like often had like woman-on-woman action. So in that sense, that was some of the first queer media that I had consumed. I wasn't super into it, but I was like, oh, like I get that this is erotic. I get that this is this is different too because it's not a man and a woman. And I think shortly after that, I started exploring gay men porn and just like seeing what that brought up. I remember the name of the first website I went to, and it was Jay's Bookmarks. And it was like a, an index of a bunch of porn sorted by type. So you could find like military or you could find like high school or whatever you were into. And just like clicking through each of those directories and you would like navigate to these external sites and download one single JPEG that took five minutes because it was dial up. But like that was my discovery of porn and of gay sex and gay men and, and gay bodies. And it was great. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't think I had any qualms about the fact that I was attracted to men. Gosh, I remember even when I would be home sick from school or we'd have like an admin day or something, I would be home with my sister. And she loved watching um, like Ricky Lake and Sally Jesse Raphael and all of that stuff. And on occasion on those shows, they would have like muscular stripper men. But there was like 20 hot buff dudes on stage just taking off their clothes. And I'm like... I'm really into this. And my sister, I remember one to my, at one point my sister was like, you like that, don't you? And I was like, no, question mark. But yeah, I, I think from a very early age, I knew I was attracted to male presenting figures. And while I would claim to be like bi through like my middle and high school years, I never contemplated like sex with a woman in that way. It was always like attraction to the male body. My parents would never have the talk with me. Um, And I think part of it's cultural, part of it's just like their comfort level, part of it's like I don't think they have the tools or the education or the information to really be able to have the talk, even if I were straight, you know? I mostly learned about sex through porn initially. When I started having sex with other people, then it was learning through them. I had bad sex for a long time. I didn't learn about douching until I was like 22, you know? And I was like, that's a pretty important skill to have as a bottom, and I was bottoming for like seven years before that, you know? Um, but like, I would have loved to have a resource growing up. But yeah, no, all of it was just, was learned via porn and via others, which is not like a great education because that's just a recipe for getting taken advantage of, you know? Um, I think the majority of my sexual discovery was pretty independent. I don't know if there, if that was because of shame, I think it also goes back to this idea of that I needed to be this golden child, good example type thing, and I didn't want to do anything that felt like even a hint of wrong in it. And so if I were going to discover sexuality, it was going to be under the cloak of darkness, you know? It was going to be on my own. Um, so I, I have two memories of, I guess, premature sex. Um, one is... Being in the shower, maybe 10 or 11, I was pretty young. Mm -hmm. 
and sticking my dick through an empty like shampoo bottle with like warm liquid in it. And it was the combination of like the warm liquid and the suction and like I'm just a kid in the shower just playing with things. I'm bored and rather than actually like doing what I'm supposed to be doing and cleansing my body, I'm just like sticking my dick apparently into like these water bottles or these shampoo bottles and um, finding that it felt good. I feel like I just had the instincts. I don't think it was the desire to to stick my dick into something or rub it on something. I don't think it was, I don't think it was like a learned behavior. I don't think I was trying to parrot anything. When I tell you I like had a little like cachet of like empty shampoo bottles that like were distinctly for that purpose, and I had no idea what it was. I had no idea what kind of enjoyment with this was or like if it was normal or not. It was just like, this feels great. Like there was definitely like a, like an excitement and a feeling of release. Like something had to conclude but I don't know like what actually happened physically or anything, but it, there was no, I don't remember there being anything to have to clean up, essentially. The other memory I have was, I guess I would also been maybe a little bit older, maybe 11 or 12. I was in an all boys choir. And when we performed, we, we had a uniform. So it was like, um, like slacks, a button down, a tie, best, whatever. And I remember putting all of that on, like full regalia, and then like humping my pillow. But it was like, like I had to put on the uniform to do it. I don't know why. And I don't know what gave me that idea of like, I'm dressed up now, now I'm going to go hump my pillow. But it was, is completely satisfying. I didn't, I don't think I came, but I probably orgasmed. And I don't know if it was like this association of being in the choir with other boys or if it was just like it, I maybe I orgasmed at one point in the uniform and it was just like a Pavlovian response. But it was just I had that strong association for a long time. And I mean, I still love like dressing up like, you know, there's that porn where you're like you're in a suit and then you're just your dicks out or something like that. Like that still kind of does it for me. So like there's still like that's the genesis of something. Um, I definitely felt guilt after the act, right? Which is like, I think we all have that post-orgasm shame of like, what kind of porn was I just watching? But I, at that young age, it, was, it wasn't the porn I was watching. It was just the act of doing it. It was feeling dirty and shameful that I gave in to this, uh, this urge and that I have to like clean up, hide the evidence and not just like the physical evidence, but the evidence of, of it within my being, right? Which is, this is something I'm going to sweep under the rug of my mind. I'm going to compartmentalize it, put it away. And that's just a thing that I will do every day and multiple times a day for the rest of my life, you I think my first famous crush was the Green Power Ranger. I don't know, there's something about him that was very, he was like dark and mysterious and he was evil at one point. It was just like, I found him really attractive. And then it was Chris O'Donnell and Batman and Robin and that like ridiculous nipple suit that he wore. And then now you have all the MCU guys, but like maybe this goes back to the whole like having to dress up in uniform thing. But this idea that someone's in a uniform is just like this like heroic masculine just save the day type of guy was was very appealing to me. 
in terms of real world crush, like this is, I was like trying to rack my brain and think about, because I, I think there's a part of me that has like black boxed a lot of my like young gay life because it was unhealthy and, and traumatizing at points. But I think my first crush in real life was probably uh, a classmate. Uh, his name is Peter. And in our suburb, the people that you went to kindergarten with were the people that you went through K through 12 with. Like you saw the same people, you grew up with them completely. And so I spent a lot of time with Peter throughout my entirety of my grade school. And it's funny, like I don't think I would be attracted to him at all now. But at the time, I I thought he was really smart. He was kind. He was athletic. Um, it would have been in middle school because we shared a locker and gym. So I got to like stand next to him while he, he undressed. And I I think that that was like an explicit choice. Like I have to share a locker with someone. So it's going to be Peter. And so this, I think we start gym in like sixth or seventh grade. And I remember wanting to be near him and be close to him and be friends with him. And I don't know if I would say that I necessarily wanted like more than that from him. But, like, it was this desire to, like, yeah, just to be in his presence, I guess. At least to, to begin with, it wasn't necessarily, like, sexual in nature. And, like, I want to sleep with this man. But I did find his body to be attractive. And, and yeah, I just, I wanted to be close to him. The majority of my relationships were with, with women, through high school. I think I would claim to be bi in that I wanted to carry on an emotional relationship with a woman, but I wanted to have sex with men. And I, in my mind, I thought that's what bi meant, you know? Like, because I had no concept of non-heterosexuality and what those relationships could be. And there was a part of me that thought, like, I could grow up, marry a woman, have that nuclear family, and live that white picket lifestyle and still have sex with men. Like, I thought that was... A potential thing that people did. I didn't know any different. I definitely had interest in men, but it didn't feel as romantic. It felt much more of a of like a sexual nature. I don't know if I told people I, if I was bi. I think it might have just been in my own head mm -hmm. as like a justification type thing. But I remember, I remember the exact moment that I realized I was gay, and it was I was seventeen, and I had gone to a party with my girlfriend at the time and we were walking around this park after the party and we were like making out and I was like oh this is not doing anything for me like I have zero interest in doing this and I was like women women are not for me and we broke up and I came out and it was like I felt so it was like this big catharsis but it, it was it's funny that I can remember that like that exact moment and um and we were still friends after, and I'm still friends with her now, which is great. And it's not like a thing like, you turned me gay. It was just like, oh, that was an epiphany I had when I was with you type thing. AIM is AOL Instant Messenger. Um, so for of a, a certain generation, it was like the way that you like kept in touch with your friends after school because no one had phones yet, cell phones yet. And so it's like, direct messaging them. But there was also this whole other world of AIM chat rooms. And so you could just find the gay men's chat 
and you could find gay men Houston chats. You could find people in your area. And so I met Richie online. I was 15, and I think he was 17 or 18. And we sent messages to one another, and we're interested in one another, and invited him over at one point when I was home alone. And in retrospect, that's so dumb. Like, good Lord, so, so dangerous. Luckily, Richie is a great guy. And um, I remember he pulled up, and I had, like, look out the window to make sure that he looked like who he said he was and and all that. And he came up to my room, and I had no idea what I was doing. And he went down on me. He started sucking my cock. And within, like, 20 seconds, I came. Like, immediate. And he commented on it. He's like, you came as soon as I put my mouth on your penis. I was like, well, I had never felt that before. It was amazing. So, like, please come back and do it again. But that was my that was my first time, and I like I got off, and I don't remember if he got off or not. But he was still obviously interested, and he came back at another point, and he he topped me, and that was my other first time. And um, I I don't remember how that was negotiated. I don't remember if he said, "Hey, you're gonna, I'm going to stick my penis in you," or "You're going to bottom," or I don't even think I had the vernacular to even describe like positions or what we were doing. I don't think I had lube. I probably used lotion. I'm pretty sure I went to the Walgreens and bought condoms because I somehow knew that that was a thing I needed. And I actually, I don't remember anything of the experience. Was it his first time too? I think it was. I think it was his first time as well. Um, and so it's, it was the blind leading the blind, right? And I think we just fumbled our way through it. And I don't know if it was particularly good sex, but it, like, it worked, right? Like, it, it, I got off. Um, we continued to have sex after that. I don't remember for how long, maybe a couple of months. And then I started sleeping with other people. Um, I do think I got lucky um, meeting Richie because we were still friends. Um, even if we didn't sleep together, we were still friends after. We kind of just drifted apart. But yeah, I was lucky to have... Uh, my first time be with someone that was like actually a nice person. I think I would have preferred it to be something more magical, but at 15, I still am still aspiring to this like romantic nuclear family ideal. And even if I wasn't having sex with a woman, at least it could still be magical and committed in some sort of like fairy tale-esque type thing with a guy. I think I'm grateful that it wasn't because I I think that if if I had lost my virginity to someone in in this like beautiful romantic story I think it would have changed my relationship with sex and changed my relationship with that person and I'm totally okay with sex being transactional and I think that our culture and our society puts too much emphasis on sex and on losing your virginity and how it should and should not happen And once you liberate yourself from the idea of sex being this kind of like privilege, this, this, this rite of passage, then, then you get to have a lot more fun. I hate the idea of like your V card or or someone taking your virginity. Like there's nothing to take. There's a first time for everything and it doesn't have to be something monumental. Thank you.
So I was working and living in Hong Kong for two or three months. And this was right before grad school. So this was 2014. I would have been 27. And prior to that point, I had never used Grindr. I had a lot of judgment and stigma about Grindr and the type of people that used it. And I was like, that'll never be me. But living in Hong Kong, I was like, I need to find gay people. I don't know how to find gay people in a foreign country, especially in a foreign country that like is not nearly as like out and like LGBT friendly as I guess Texas was, <laughs> which is ironic to say. So I downloaded Grinder for the first time and started doing that whole song and dance. And I think Tinder had just come out at that time too. And I ended up meeting this French expat. I don't remember his name. And I don't know what attracted me to him. When I hooked up with him, it was very clear that he was very much into like this dom top power dynamic. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Prior to that, I had never experimented with anything like that. All my sex was very vanilla. And like I said, I, I think that I had a lot of bad sex for a lot of t- a long time. Sleeping with this man was the first time that I kind of like, I think, unlocked a door in my mind. And it was very animalistic and primal and raw. And it was one of the first times I think that I like really just like let go and had fun and just enjoyed sex. He was very dominant and controlling and like, you're gonna, you're gonna suck my cock. And like, it was a very just like, he was in charge, I was obedient. And it, I think that that dynamic allowed me to just like relax. In all areas of my life, I am in control. I am the dominant person in work, in like my platonic relationships. I am very much the leader. And it was in that moment that I understood how people get into like baby play or pup play or any of that stuff because it is your ability to, in this safe space, turn off your brain and not lead anymore and not be in control anymore because you trust this other person to guide you and give you pleasure and you don't have to worry about any of that extraneous stuff. In one of these encounters, I did blow for the first time, which, again, in retrospect, not a great idea in a foreign country with some man I met on Grindr doing like hard drugs for the first time ever. Not making great decisions. But I think it was also part of that that the drugs helped me relax and to be more obedient or subservient and to enjoy that kind of experience a bit more. And it definitely played into that power dynamic of like him telling me, you're going to do this. And I just like was so in the headspace of like, I want to please this man that I just did it. So while it wasn't, as with so many of my sexual experiences, it wasn't like the smartest thing to do at the time, it did change sex for me completely. And it allowed me to, to find more pleasurable sex and realize that like, like I obviously don't need drugs in order to have that kind of experience, but that that experience is fun and I can try more things and, and, and try kinkier sex um, and, and really push my boundaries. I think when I first started sleeping with men, I don't feel like I got a great response. I would always question, is it because I'm Asian? Is it because I'm unattractive? Is it because of my personality? Like, I just... I never knew. 
I was predominantly attracted to Asian men, seeing other uh, men that looked like me, feeling attracted to other men like me. And it's, it's funny now, it's like I'm mostly attracted to white guys now for whatever reason. But as I made that transition from mostly sleeping with Asian guys to sleeping a diverse like cast of characters, I found that I was getting a lot of tension from older white men. They were the ones that were messaging me on the apps. They were the ones that, that were initiating. And there's so much to unpack here because I don't know if my attraction, like now I, I say that I'm attracted to older white men. And I don't know if that is an attraction that I have innately or if that tra- attraction was created out of the attention that I was given. And knowing that if I pursue this particular demographic, then I am more likely f- to have that, that feeling of attraction be reciprocated. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, is I think it, it, it obviously plays into the stereotype of middle-aged white top Twinkie, subservient, Asian bottom, submissive bottom. And it was a dynamic that I enjoyed. It was a dynamic that I played up and embraced for a long time and still do. I still am very attracted to older white men um, for whatever reason. And that's not to say I'm not attracted to other ages. I mean, both of my partners are younger than me. And it's not to say that I'm not attracted to other races or body types or anything like that. It's just like we can walk into a room and my partners will be like, you probably like that guy over there. And I still, I think between the Frenchman and I would say the last two years, like I, I was a submissive bottom. That was all I wanted to be. Like that was, I got the most joy out of that. That's how I knew I was going to get pleasure. Um, part of me hated it because I was fulfilling a stereotype. And I think... Part of it is this internalized racism, self-racism. I don't, I don't quite know the, the right term for it, but just this feeling that, like, that I couldn't be the top, that I, that I wasn't dominant or powerful or attractive enough or had a nice enough penis to be a top, that I couldn't use my body in that way and that I was meant to be some sort of vehicle for someone else's pleasure, even if I enjoyed it. And in the last couple of years, and partly as a result of, uh, of my relationship, is I've become more verse, and I've become I've started enjoying topping more. And it's interesting as a top, I am a dom top, which it's because I know how to be a submissive bottom that I know how to be a dom top, I suppose. Um, but this whole idea of being a submissive Asian bottom really like bothers me. Because I, I can go on the apps right now and still get those messages of like only into Asians or daddy top looking for Asian bottom and stuff like that. And anytime that someone brings race into the conversation, even if someone just asks what my ethnicity is, it immediately just shuts me down because I don't know why it's relevant. This then morphs into this conversation about like fetishization, right? Which is like, are you only interested in me because I'm Asian? And feeling like I am so much more than that. I am so much more of a person and I have so much more to offer. But like, 
you still have people that are like, no fats, no femmes, no Asians, whatever, and they'll just immediately shut you down as, fun, as soon as they find out any of that stuff. So it happens on both ends, being rejected for your ethnicity and being attractive and fetishized for your ethnicity. And so I think there, there's still a significant part of me that questions that every time that someone expresses interest in me, right? Is that I can look through their Instagram and see who their exes are, see who they message and things like that. And I'm like, oh, they, they talk to a lot of young Asian men. And so do they like me for me or do they like me because I fit this mold for them? And just because I fit this mold for them too doesn't mean that they're bad people or that they are fetishizing me. It's just, again, maybe it's something that they're attracted to that we have in common, but it's always this question for me. At different times, I feel like I will, how do I put this? I, I feel like I'll pull the race card in my own mind as a way to, to validate myself. And it's like, if a guy isn't interested or doesn't respond to a message, I'll be like, oh, I'm not the problem. He's just not into Asian people or something like that to make myself feel better. Whereas he may not be attracted to me physically or he may not be attracted to my personality, which is fine too. But it's a way for me, it's like a crutch that I have. And so these are all things I'm still trying to navigate and figure out. Is like, how does my race intersect with my sexuality, my position, my standing, my attraction, and I still don't, I don't have a good answer. But I know that I am more apt to be attracted to someone if they have shown a general attraction to a multitude of people and types. I am attracted to that openness because that's what I want to embrace as well. After grad school, so this would have been, I think, 2016. And I had a job lined up, but I had like six months off that I could just gallivant. I was like, well, I'm broke, but I want to travel. So what I'll do is I'll like live in my car and just drive across the U.S. And so that's what I did. I lived in my car for 64 days and just like drove to national parks, went hiking, and had like fucked my way across the U.S. in like Vancouver. It was incredible. I had so much fun. I took a lot of risks. There was a lot of danger involved, but I had a lot of great adventures, including a lot of great sex. So this particular story happens when I was in Vancouver. I didn't have like a Vancouver or Canadian SIM card, so I was like relying on Wi-Fi. And so every time I got on Wi-Fi, I'd like check out Grinder and see who was around. So I am walking around the University of British Columbia and get a note from this hot guy and he wants me to come over and we're like trying to sort it out and I'm trying to stay on Wi-Fi for as long as I can to like coordinate and we eventually figure it out. And so I go over to his place and we're having, we have sex for like hours. Like it is great sex. And he's like really into ass play, as am I. And to let you know the type of person that I am, as on this road trip, I had carried like a case of random like sexual accoutrement, including this 12-inch double-ended dildo. And we're playing with all these toys, and he like whips out the, the double-ended dildo, and he wants to play with that, and he like is like fucking me with it. It's great. He's double fucking me with it. It's great. And um, he's like inserting it all the way in, and like I've got. I've got space. Like, it, it can go in. And at one point, he's just like, oh. And I'm like, what's going on? He's like, well, well, it's in there. 
And I'm like, what, what do you mean? He's like, I lost it in there. It, it just like, it, it, it kind of just sucked it up. And I was like, I don't know what you mean. He's like, get it out. And he, he's unable to retrieve said dildo. And it's not like super wide. It's probably like an inch and a half in uh, diameter. But it's, it's in me. The entire thing is in my body. And we proceed to go through everything we can think of to get it out of me. I'm like squatting over the toilet. I remember listening to a podcast and someone's like, try some poppers. I did poppers and like none of that helped. He's like trying to fish it out of me and it is not going anywhere. And like, again, I've got some real estate in there and it is not extremely comfortable, but it is also not like, I'm not dying, right? And so I'm in Canada. I don't have health insurance. I'm not covered by universal health care because I'm not a Canadian citizen. And so I'm like, I don't know what to do. But at this point, it doesn't feel like either of us is going to get this out. So I need to go to the hospital. He's like, no, well, let me call the nurse's line first. Because apparently that's something they have in Canada. And I was like, what is she going to tell you to do? Like, this is not a common case that she's going to be like, yes, exactly. Here, we will send you some forceps to get it out of you. Um, And so we call the nurse and she's like, well, you should go to the ER. And I was like, well, no shit. We just lost another 30 minutes because this man did not like immediately take me to the ER. So we go to this ER next to his place and it's it's like a university ER. So they're not like a full on hospital. So we go there and I'm like having to explain the story to this random woman, this poor woman. And, you know, thank God for medical professionals and how like level-headed they are because I'm sure they've seen it all. And she's like, you can talk to the doctor. I'm not confident that we have the facilities that are needed in order to remove that from you. And there's a good chance that if we started this procedure with you, then we would have to transfer you to one of the other hospitals, in which case you would have to pay whatever like fees here and then pay those other fees at the bigger hospital. So we suggest you just go straight to the big hospital. And it's like, Great. Now I've lost another like hour at this like first ER. And meanwhile, all of this is happening is like this guy is freaking out. And I'm like, sir, like I appreciate that you're freaked out right now, but you also don't have a 12-inch double-ended dildo inside of you. You're also not in a foreign country, and you're also not having to pay for this out of pocket. So just like, how about you calm down? Because I can't keep you calm and myself calm at the same time. And I'm going to give myself a lot of credit here is that I was very level-headed. I had straightforward conversations with everyone I interacted with. So we go to the second hospital at this point, and we, I go to the ER. And again, I'm in this like ER of people that have like limbs cut off. And I'm sitting with like the intake nurse and she's like, so what's going on tonight? And I'm just like, well, there's a 12-inch dildo inside of me right now. She's like, okay, are you feeling okay? And I was like, I'm feeling a little like bloated and gassy, but otherwise I'm fine. Surprisingly, they see me in a reasonable amount of time. I'm still there for like probably like an hour before anyone sees me. But I, they eventually go back and do an x-ray. Like, great, we'll do the x-ray. And then we come out of the x-ray and they're like, we don't see anything. And I was like... Trust me, I know it's in there, 100%. I can guarantee you that there is something in there. I don't know if you can't see it or not. And so they say, okay. And I, so at some point, I get into like an exam room. And the hottest doctor walks in. And he's this beautiful, beautiful man that walks in. And he's going to be my doctor. And again, this is like one in the morning, right? So he walks in and he says... 
like, I understand the situation. I'm going to call and prep the surgical team because I don't think I can get out of you. And I'm like, how much is this going to cost to call in an on-call surgery team at one in the morning to, like, open me up? And I was like, I also don't want to have surgery in a foreign country. Like, it's Canada, but it's also a foreign country. And I don't know what the recovery time is. Like, I don't want to do this. Like, it's, like, vehemently against it. And he's like, I can try to get in there. But I, he's like, I, again, I have no guarantees that I'm going to be able to retrieve it. And if I can't retrieve it, then we're going to have to go to surgery anyways. And you're going to have to pay for both my time and the surgical team's time. And I was like, I hear you, but I also have confidence in the, like, the, the flexibility of my rectum. And he's like, okay, we'll put you under and we'll try it. And if we can't, we're not successful, then we'll have to call the surgery. And I was like, this is terrible, but okay. And so they start prepping to put me under so the doctor could try it. And somehow it balloons from just like this one doctor and an anesthesiologist to like a room of like eight people. And I'm like, since when do all these people need to be involved? And I was like, fine. I'm like, I'm never going to see any of these people ever again. It's, it's fine. So I go under and I wake back up and it's just me and the dude like that I was sleeping with. And I was like, is it, is it done? Is it out? Like, am I good? And they're like, yeah. He's like, we, we, they got it out. And it's wrapped in this black garbage bag just sitting on the counter. I was like, they're going to leave it out for me to take home? Like, I'm going to take this thing back with me? And the anesthesiologist is still there. And he is also this incredibly attractive man. And he's like talking to me and like helping me wake back up and everything. He's like, yeah, well, at least now my, me and my partner know what not to do anymore. And I was like, so everyone here is gay too? Like, I was like, great. I am going to be their story for the night, for the next week, forever, however long. And the dildo made it out of me. I did not take it home. I left it there. I don't know what they did with it. I, I assume they threw it away. And I went back with this man to his place and proceeded to like be like, well, I didn't get off earlier, so like... You got to make it happen now and proceeded to have sex with him and came and then went to sleep and like woke up and left the next morning. But it was one of the most traumatizing experiences of my life. I've since learned have a flared base on anything you stick in your butt or have someone that's like equipped to know what to do with that kind of thing. But yeah, that is that is my most embarrassing story. I've had a lot of group sex. I like the complexity of sensation. Like there's just, there's so much to touch on you and there's so much like that you can explore, so many different bodies and experiences you can explore. I think the majority of my my threesomes and group sex have been more like like tag teaming and gang banging type of situations um, because I like being the center of attention. And so... I feel like most of those interactions have been with, like, couples to where, like, hey, me and my husband are looking and, like, I would come over and be, like, the, the prize for the night or whatever. I don't know. Um, I think for me, sex for a long time was tied to validation. It was how I was seen and acknowledged and how I got to feel attractive was, like, people wanting to put their dick in me. And so... When you're having sex with multiple partners, that validation is exponential, right? Like, it's, it's like, not only does one person find me attractive, but this other person finds me attractive at the same time. And so I think that's, that's why I enjoy it. Um, I don't know if I recall the first time. I remember one of my early ones was when I was in grad school. 
And it was with this group of like Dom Tops. And I just remember being in heaven. There's three of them, I think. Yeah, three of them. And just like being like passed around or hearing them be like, oh yeah, that's hot. And like just having that kind of cacophony in my head was really gratifying. And again, it was it's feeling like this desirable piece of meat. Um, like, why not take it to the extreme, right? Like, challenge yourself, push yourself farther, and to try different things. I'm I'm very sex positive, and one of one of my mantras is I'll try anything twice within reason. Within reason, there are definitely some things I will not try. Like, I mean, blood and scatter. I think on are like most people's list. Sounding, I like it will never appeal to me. But like, other than that, like if someone's like. I'm into smelling your armpits or I'm into water sports. I'm like, mm, not really my thing. I'll try it if it gets you off because my partner's pleasure is is like paramount to me. And so I want to explore it with them. But there's also like a selfish curiosity in that. Like maybe I will be into this. And so I always say try it twice because you never know if the first time was a fluke. If you Whether or not you hated it or you loved it, you don't know if the first time was just like a magic set of circumstances. So I'll try it again. And so, yeah, like, my experience with group play was the first time was really great, or the first time I can remember was really great, so why not do more of that? And I think it was more about the psychological aspect of it than it was actually about the physical aspect of it. I first met Kaylin and Ian at a, a friend's sex party about three, three and a half years ago. Okay. This was an interesting time in my life because I was dating... I want to say nine people at that time. A couple of them were couples. And the reason that a lot of, I was hanging out with couples a lot was because I was scared of commitment. Like I didn't want to be in a relationship. I was scared of being in a relationship. And couples seemed to be an easy way to not have to deal with that, that risk, right? Like I was like, I can barely let, like likes one person and have that one person like me, let alone two other people. So there's no risk of anyone falling in love and anything happening. And lo and behold. Um, so I have a pretty open friend group in Seattle. I think we've all been pretty honest and open with each other of like who slept with who and we're all pretty sex positive and we respect each other's romantic relationships and things like that, but we like having sex with different people. And at one point, two of my friends who were in a relationship wanted to have basically an orgy. And they opened up their place and invited like a group of, I think it was probably like 12 guys that they knew and vetted. And so I knew it was going to be a safe environment. So I showed up and it was kind of like we all stood around the island and at some point they were like, okay, go have sex now. And then people proceeded to like go off into different rooms and start fooling around and then come back together. And it was just... It was a fun experience of no judgment, no shame. It was just do what you want to do, sleep with who you want to sleep with. Everyone was fully consenting. And if you didn't want to do something, you didn't have to do it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And so they ended up throwing two of those parties. Um, and then I'd been to a really different sex party that a different friend threw, which was at the Hawk's Nest. So the Hawk's Nest is essentially like an Airbnb sex dungeon that you can you can rent so it's got like a sling and a like 
a bed and like couches and like tons of like lube and poppers and toys and stuff like that that you can like rent for the night. And um, it's it's funny we we reminisce about this all the time because I beelined for Ian as soon as like all the action started. Like I went straight for him. I was like, this is this is my type of man, and immediately just like started making out with him. And then Kaylin likes to say that I ignored him the entire party until the very end when we were the last two people that hadn't gotten off yet. And so by virtue of that, we were like, well, now we have to have sex with each other so we can both get off. And I was like, no, I was just trying to bookend it. So I started with one of you and ended with other. But he, he's convinced that I was trying to ignore him. But in any case, we, the, the sex was good. We enjoyed each other's company. And so it started becoming a more like, regular thing. And we would, I would go over to their place and we would like Netflix and chill for like 15 minutes and then we would hook up. And then it started gradually like spending more time together. And at some point, Kalen expressed that he was falling in love with me, which was very jarring. It was very shocking to me. And he had obviously already discussed it with Ian. They have a very honest and communicative relationship, which is what allowed me to come into the relationship. He professed these feelings to me, and it scared the shit out of me. Like, I wanted to run the other direction because I was just like, this is not what I signed up for. And I said, I love what we have. I don't feel an obligation to put, like, labels on it or define it. I just, I think we should try to feel it out and see where it goes from there because we're too early on in any of this to commit to anything. So let's just have fun. And then, like, two weeks later, I asked them to be my boyfriend's. Because it was, it was in that moment of, like, realization of, like, oh, these are great guys. I am attracted to them. I want to, to spend more time with them. And so I came back, and I asked them to be my boyfriends, and they said yes. And it's, like, I obviously had, like, a depth of feeling for them, and I wanted to mark some level of commitment to them. And we hadn't used the L word yet in the context of, like, I am in love with you. But it was... It was very clear that we were, that people had feelings trending that direction. And then it was uh, that holiday. So we became boyfriends in July. And then, like Thanksgiving, Kaylin told me he loved me. And I was not prepared for that again, but I reciprocated. And it felt genuine. And it feels genuine. And since then, we have all said, I love you to each other. We have, it's, it's part of our nightly ritual. So when we started hanging out, I would stay over at their place. So we lived apart, um, and they had a queen bed. And within, like, months, months of us starting this relationship, Kalen bought a king bed. Because he knew. He knew. He, like, he has such confidence in our relationship that he knew that he bought a king bed. And I was like, that's bold. And so we would all sleep together in the king bed at their old apartment. And then I would usually wake up pretty early, maybe around 7 a.m. and go out into the couch and sleep there just because I was awake. And that would be, you know, Friday, Saturday night or something like that. And then when we moved in together here, we started doing the same thing where we go to sleep in the same bed every night. And then it just, it's too fucking hot in a bed with three people and a dog. And just like, there's no room to breathe. And so it's become our routine now that we go to bed together in the same bed all um, at the beginning of the night. And then at some point, like two or three hours into the night, I'll wake up and I'll come to my bed and just so I can like be cool. But it is, it's an interesting ritual because like we'll all brush our teeth, them in their bathroom, me in my bathroom. And then like as a part of like getting ready for bed, I'll like make sure my bed is ready for me just to like 
run into and like fall asleep. So I'll take the pillows off and get everything arranged because I know I'll eventually end up here, but I have to start the evening with them. The good night ritual, I think I just like, as with a lot of our relationship, it's stuff that, that Ian and Kaylin have already had together and I've kind of just weaseled myself myself into. But I think Kaylin starts it off and he says, good night. Ian says, sweet dreams. And then we all say, I love you. And it happens every night. I feel like I was in love multiple times in my kind of coming out and, and realizing and finding myself. If I look back on those relationships now, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was love. I think it might have been infatuation or lust or what have you. But like, in my mind, the person I was at that time was in love. I thought that what I had was a profound relationship or a profound attraction to someone. But all of those relationships feel obviously inconsequential to the one that I'm in right now, right? And it's because I have changed, my needs and wants and desires have changed. And so with that, with that in mind, like it, part of me feels like I've never been in love except for where I'm at right now. But at the same time, part of me feels like I've been in love many a time. It's just, I'm no longer that person anymore. There was a long distance boyfriend I had in high school that I never actually met in person until after we broke up. And it was just like, I was in love. I was in love with the idea of this person and this, this future that I thought we could have together. I was in love with this ex-boyfriend that I was with all through undergrad for three and a half, four years, who restricted my every movement and made me feel like a terrible person. But I, I was in love. I wouldn't have stayed if I, if I wasn't in love. And I've been in love with, you know, random boys since then. But I, I don't know if any of them have had a significant impact on my life as the relationship I'm currently in. And that's why for me, when I think about it, like, I can't pinpoint or think about a specific person because it's all kind of a wash for me. I don't know. I've just, I've never been part of a relationship, romantic or otherwise, that has fulfilled me so much, challenged me so much, enabled me to become a better person, a more educated person, as much as this relationship has. And I, I am I'm so thankful and so grateful for it because I think that's what a good relationship should do for you is to provide you support when you need it, but also challenge you to become a better person. I think my best move in bed is listening and communicating. I get off on my partner getting off. I try to be attentive to how my partner reacts, whether it's moaning or saying yes or writhing or whatever it may be. I try to pay attention to that and do more of that. And it's, it's down to things like, oh, he's playing with my nipples. He must like his nipples played with. It's just trying to pay attention and and making sure that my partner is enjoying themselves. So everyone is different. What everyone likes is different. And so it's being able to to listen and be attentive and to make sure that other person's having fun. And so like my move at any one encounter may be different based on, on that person. And I think the thing for me is that I try to do the same thing in return, right? Is I try to to communicate and however I think the other person might understand. So whether, again, that's moaning or actually saying, no, like, lick my balls now, or if it's 
you know, like getting into a certain position, I try to be pretty explicit about what I want and what I want to do. And I think communication is the foundation of any successful relationship, whether that be professional, romantic, or sexual. You know, like as long as you can communicate with the other person, then you're going to have a good time. And then what my partners lovingly refer to as the throat goat 5000 is I'm really good at deep throating. It depends on the dick. It depends on the position, time of day, whatever. But it is something that I genuinely enjoy, and it's something apparently I'm genuinely good at. Um, haven't met one that I haven't been able to successfully deep throat yet. The first thing is to know your angles. Every dick is different, so you can't approach every dick in the same way. So depending on the curve of it, you have to figure out a way for it to naturally go down your throat. The other step is breathing or learning how to breathe. And so it's not holding your breath per se. It's sometimes learning to like, at what point do you need to hold your breath? So can you like breathe in through your nose, get the dick down your throat, cram it there for like 30 seconds, 60 seconds, whatever, and like make it feel good and then release a little bit so you can breathe. And it's also like learning to control your throat muscles which sounds really simplistic, but it's learning to relax your throat and not gagging on it. And then also, I think the the follow-up to that is to learn how to be able to move and contract your throat when there's something in it. And so that way you get that kind of like suction feeling at, at the on the head. And so I feel like I've become pretty adept at those things. It's funny, I talked to I talked to Ian about the fact that like I feel like bottoming has taught me how to breathe better. I use it when I work out, like I'm like weightlifting. So I'm just like, breathe through the pain, just relax into it. And all of a sudden it's just like, that's what I do when I bottom. That's what I do when I like deep throat. Um, yeah, bottoming me has made me a better person. It's, fu- it's funny because I have, my, my worst way to die is by drowning and like suffocation. Mm-hmm. Yet I love gagging on a cock. I think there's something to it too that's like the lightheadedness of it is like a natural kind of like, poppery type feeling, which is like you, this is bad. It, you basically cut off a little bit of like the blood and air circulation to your brain. <laughs> so you kind of just like relax into it a little bit. But as long as you kind of like embrace that feeling, it's fine. Anyone who's interested in dominant and submissive sex, there's like a lot of resources, and a lot of really knowledgeable people in the community. So I will give my kind of like understanding of it and what I practice. But one of the really cool things that I found out about like dom-sub relationships is that the sub is usually the one in control or should be the one in control. They're the ones that get to say no. They're the ones that get to like kind of guide the session and, and determine like what they're willing and not willing to do. For me, when someone takes on a dominant role, it is it is more about like a persona that they put on. It is more about the way they talk, the way they move, the way um, they interact with the other person. I'm trying to think of a good analogy. It's like they're the director, right? Like they're the ones, or maybe the dom is the the screenwriter. And so they are the ones that that are kind of architecting the storyline. But the submissive is the director, is the one that ultimately has the the choice of what's in and what's out and how it's done. They get to be the ultimate decider. And so when I am Dom, it is more about making the submissive 
feel desired and wanted and talked to in a certain way. And sometimes that's humiliation, sometimes that's degradation, but ultimately listening and respecting them and and what they want to do. Um, I will only push on uh, someone's submissiveness when it's clear that that's what they are into and that's what they like. I'll be very, again, it's about communicating and listening and say, do you like it when I call you that? Or do you like it when I do this? And then lean into it and do it more and just play that dominant role. And I think that afterwards, it's the cuddling. It's the you did a good job. It's aftercare um, and making sure that that person's taken care of. So I think, again, by being someone that has historically been submissive um, and knowing what I like out of it, it's like that's what I try to give back to someone that wants to fulfill that role. Sex is not this monolithic thing. And I mean that in a couple different ways. One is that, like, there's not one way to have sex. And there's not one way that's good or one way that's okay or one way that's safer or whatever. Sex is, it's a buffet, you know? And you get to explore and, and challenge and and do things as you see fit. So don't feel like you have to perform a certain actor, perform a certain role because you are a certain size or a certain ethnicity or a certain whatever. Like, have fun with it and, and explore and, and, and try different things. And the other way I mean it is that it's kind of what we were talking about earlier is that sex is not the end-all be-all. It's not relationship-defining. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And just because you slept with someone doesn't mean that you're going to have a relationship with them. And just because you slept with them doesn't mean you can't have a relationship with them. It's, I think that we, we have all of this societal stigma around what happens when two people stick, or three people, or ten people stick their genitals together. And it doesn't have to be that. You can sleep with your best friend, and you can not sleep with your partner and you can be blindfolded and ass up in a dungeon somewhere and have the most intimate sex of your life. As long as you're open to it and you are consenting with other consenting adults, then try it out and have fun. When I was living in Texas, I didn't have grinder. I like judged people that were in open relationships. I was like, oh, they mustn't really not love each other. Like if they can't have sex with one another, what's the point? Like I was really judgmental, really prudish, really conservative. Um, and when I left Texas, I lived for, in New York for a little bit. And I started interacting with people that were in open relationships or that were in like non-traditional relationships. And I was so lucky to be around people that were willing to talk about those relationships and be open about them. And the thing I realized is that these people that had these different arrangements all still loved each other. They had great fulfilling relationships as a part of their primary relationship, but they also had these amazing relationships outside of it, that they were happy, they were healthy. I also realized that there's not one specific way in order to have a polyamorous or open relationship. And so I just educated myself by talking to others, by reading The Ethical Slut and 
understanding that there was so much more out there and so much more opportunity out there, it made me want to try it. Once I tried it, I realized it was super fulfilling. Since then, the number of people that I meet that are in these kind of different relationships, they're all tremendous human beings. They're all so open. They're all so happy and fulfilled and are better at communicating. And I, that's what I aspire to have and bring into my life. And so that's why, that's why I wanted to do this podcast. That's why I am so quick to talk about my relationship. I am so quick to talk about my, my sexual history and my experiences is because I want to normalize these things. I want people to feel like there are examples of happy, successful people living these different lifestyles. And just because you engage in certain acts doesn't make you a heathen or, you know, unworthy of love or something like that. So it's it's taken time to kind of like unlearn those conservative, judgmental stereotypes and to be more open. But since doing that, I've had some of the best sex of my life. So I think when I first started hooking up, it was obviously a duck at different time. This is like pre-prep, pre-apps. Sex felt transactional. It didn't feel like it was for my pleasure necessarily. It was, it felt more for like validation, which we talked about. It felt more for just wanting to be seen and wanting to be attracted to other people. And it was like, getting off was important, but it was like, as long as that other person got off, then I successfully am like, I am attractive. I am, I've done my duty, essentially. Now hooking up, I feel like is more pleasurable because I'm more intent on my own pleasure. It's less about making sure someone else gets off. It's less about making sure that they think I'm attractive and more about kind of this joint shared experience of getting off together. And sometimes not even getting off. You don't have to like orgasm or come in order to have a good time during sex. But it's more about like being in my body and being physical with someone else and enjoying their body or enjoying multiple people's bodies. So it it feels a lot more fun and less prescriptive, I think. Initially when I was hooking up, it was come over, stick your penis in my butt, orgasm and then leave type thing. And, And now it's more like, come over, maybe we'll have some dinner, maybe we'll chat for a bit, we'll like fuck around, maybe watch some Netflix, fuck around some more. Like there's like so much more fun to it and more of like relationship building into it. It doesn't feel like it's just like, I'm only here for the sex. And don't get me wrong, that still happens. Like I still have those occasions where it's like, you're a a pole and I'm a hole, like let's get it done type thing. But like, I think there's just a lot more uh, facets to sex now. Your pleasure is important. Not just to get off, but to enjoy yourself throughout the process. Like, an orgasm and coming is not the end goal. Sometimes just going through the process is sufficient, and you should enjoy that process. And if you're not enjoying it, leave. (laughs) You're not obligated to do anything for anybody and you can say no at any time. And and it's important for you to have that voice 
and to recognize that your feelings and your wants and your needs are important too. And so don't sacrifice any of that for someone else's joy and someone else's pleasure um, because there are plenty of other people that will want to have sex with you. And this one dude or whoever is not, it's not worth it. My parents met my partners maybe a month ago. In the beginning, I wasn't necessarily very overt about that relationship with my parents. Um, but as, I just like teared up from talking about that. Um, <laughs> as things progressed, I would make more and more references to them. And they were clearly a part of my life. And I wanted my parents to know that. Um, and I think probably maybe like a year into it, I like made some reference to them as my boyfriends and have never really like shied away from that. But it's funny when my mom got here, she was on the phone with my uncle and she said something about like, oh, Michael's roommates. And I was like, we need to stop the car. They're not my roommates. You're very clear on this. Like, you know, you're not about to meet my roommates. They are so much more than that. And, and I like lectured my mom for a good like five minutes because I was, I told her that, I understand that the language can be hard. I understand that making this change and, and referring to them as my partners is difficult. I believe in your ability to change and adapt and understand this. But I was like, it's important to me that you acknowledge them for who they are because referring to them as my roommates really minimizes the importance of this relationship and the amount of work that we've all put into this relationship. So with that preface, like 15 minutes later, she walked into this apartment and met them. And my parents were loving and gave them hugs and we spent the weekend together and they got to know each other and uh, the boys were invited home and for the holidays and to eat good food and stuff like that. And I think my parents have grown so much in, in the last couple of decades and just been more willing to, to listen and to not judge. Um, and ultimately, they said, as long as you're happy, then we're happy for you. And I think that's what anybody ever wants to hear from their parents. They may not understand everything, they may not agree with everything, but I think being here and seeing the three of us interact, they realize that I'm happy, I'm in a healthy relationship, and we take care of each other, and that it's not some like weird gay sex cult or something like that, you know? And it was important for me, in, because my parents have never met one of my partners before, let alone a throuple, at least as my partner. They've met boys I was dating on occasion, but it was never like, mom and dad, this is my boyfriend, blah. But the thing is, is that I wasn't nervous about it at all because I have full confidence in the boys of who they are and that they would make good impressions. I was more like worried about how much my parents would embarrass me <laughs> to them. <laughs> but yeah, it was... I don't want to say liberating because I don't think I was waiting for that approval. I'm, I wasn't going to let it stop me from, from living the life I was leading, but it, it, it was, I think, reassuring that my parents are welcoming this aspect of my life and that I don't have to worry about compartmentalizing different aspects of my life in order to be happy. I have to give them a lot of credit, and it's, again, one of those things that I have had to learn over time. And like day-to-day, month-to-month, I 
realize more how much they worked for the life that I have right now, how much they sacrificed in order to, to provide me this opportunity, and, and how much, again, they've grown as individuals to really embrace who I am as a person, and embrace and love me, and embrace the people that I love. Yeah, I want to give them a lot of shit, but, but they are incredible. They really are. Fruitful interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruitbowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions and news about future production. Visit fruitbullpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruitbowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Syra B. This has been a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening. Thank you.